Section seven of the Essays of Samuel Johnson. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essays of Samuel Johnson, section seven. The difference between an author's writings and his conversation. Saturday, May the fifth, seventeen fifty. Nil fuit unquam sic dispassibi Horace. Sure such a various creature ne'er was known, Francis. Among the many inconsistencies which folly produces or infirmity suffers in the human mind, there has often been observed a manifest and striking contrariety between the life of an author and his writings and Milton, in a letter to a learned stranger by whom he had been visited, with great reason congratulates himself upon the consciousness of being found equal to his own character, and having preserved in a private and familiar interview that reputation which his works had procured him. Those whom the appearance of virtue or the evidence of genius have tempted to a nearer knowledge of the writer in whose performances they may be found, have indeed had frequent reason to repent their curiosity. The bubble that sparkled before them has become common water at the touch. The phantom of perfection has vanished when they wish to press it to their bosom. They have lost the pleasure of imagining how far humanity may be exalted and perhaps felt themselves less inclined to toil up the steps of virtue when they observe those who seem best able to point the way loitering below as either afraid of the labourer or doubtful of the reward it has been long the custom of the oriental monarchs to hide themselves in gardens and palaces to avoid the conversation of mankind and to be known to their subjects only by their edicts. The same policy is no less necessary to him that writes than to him that governs, for men would not more patiently submit to be taught than commanded by one known to have the same follies and weaknesses with themselves. A sudden intruder into the closet of an author would perhaps feel equal indignation with the officer who, having long solicited admission into the presence of Sardanapalus, saw him not consulting upon laws, inquiring into grievances or modelling armies, but employed in feminine amusements and directing the ladies in their work. It is not difficult to conceive, however, that for many reasons a man writes much better than he lives, for, without entering into refined speculations, it may be shown much easier to design than to perform. A man proposes his schemes of life in a state of abstraction and disengagement, exempt from the enticements of hope, the solicitations of affection, the importunities of appetite, or the depressions of fear. It is in the same state with him that teaches upon land the art of navigation, to whom the sea is always smooth and the wind always prosperous. 
the mathematicians are well acquainted with the difference between pure science which has to do only with ideas and the application of its laws to the use of life in which they are constrained to submit to the imperfection of matter and the influence of accidents thus in moral discussions it is to be remembered that many impediments obstruct our practice which very easily give way to theory the speculatist is only in danger of erroneous reasoning but the man involved in life has his own passions and those of others to encounter and is embarrassed with a thousand inconveniencies which confound him with variety of impulse and either perplex or obstruct his way he is forced to act without deliberation and obliged to choose before he can examine he is surprised by sudden alterations in the state of things and changes his measures according to superficial appearances he is led by others either because he is indolent or because he is timorous he is sometimes afraid to know what is right and sometimes finds friends or enemies diligent to deceive him we are therefore not to wonder that most fail amidst tumult and snares and danger in the observance of those precepts which they lay down in solitude safety and tranquillity with a mind unbiased and with liberty unobstructed it is the condition of our present state to see more than we can attain the exactest vigilance and caution can never maintain a single day of unmingled innocence much less can the utmost efforts of incorporated mind reach the summits of speculative virtue it is however necessary for the idea of perfection to be proposed that we may have some object to which our endeavours are to be directed and he that is most deficient in the duties of life makes some atonement for his faults if he warns others against his own failings and hinders by the salubrity of his admonitions the contagion of his example nothing is more unjust however common than to charge with hypocrisy him that expresses zeal for those virtues which he neglects to practise since he may be sincerely convinced of the advantages of conquering his passions without having yet obtained the victory as a man may be confident of the advantages of a voyage or a journey without having courage or industry to undertake it and may honestly recommend to others those attempts which he neglects himself the interest which the corrupt part of mankind have in hardening themselves against every motive to amendment has disposed them to give to these contradictions when they can be produced against the cause of virtue that weight which they will not allow them in any other case they see men act in opposition to their interest without supposing that they do not know it those who give way to the sudden violence of passion and forsake the most important pursuits for petty pleasures are not supposed to have changed their opinions or to approve their own conduct in moral or religious questions alone they determine the sentiments by the actions 
and charge every man with endeavouring to impose upon the world whose writings are not confirmed by his life. They never consider that themselves neglect or practice something every day inconsistently with their own settled judgment, nor discover that the conduct of the advocates for virtue can little increase or lessen the obligations of their dictates. Argument is to be invalidated only by argument, and is in itself of the same force, whether or not it convinces him by whom it is proposed. Yet since this prejudice, however unreasonable, is always likely to have some prevalence, it is the duty of every man to take care, lest he should hinder the efficacy of his own instructions. When he desires to gain the belief of others, he should show that he believes himself, and when he teaches the fitness of virtue by his reasonings, he should, by his example, prove its possibility. Thus much, at least, may be required of him, that he shall not act worse than others, because he writes better, nor imagine that, by the merit of his genius, he may claim indulgence beyond mortals of the lower classes, and be excused for want of prudence or neglect of virtue. Bacon, in his History of the Winds, after having offered something to the imagination as desirable, often proposes lower advantages in its place to the reason, as attainable. The same method may be sometimes pursued in moral endeavours which this philosopher observed in natural inquiries. Having first set positive and absolute excellence before us, we may be pardoned, though we sink down to humbler virtue, trying, however, to keep our point always in view, and struggling not to lose ground, though we cannot gain it. It is recorded of Sir Matthew Hale that he for a long time concealed the consecration of himself to the stricter duties of religion, lest by some flagitious and shameful action he should bring piety into disgrace. For the same reason it may be prudent for a writer, who apprehends that he shall not enforce his own maxims by his domestic character, to conceal his name, that he may not injure them. There are indeed a great number whose curiosity to gain a more familiar knowledge of successful writers is not so much prompted by an opinion of their power to improve as to delight, and to expect from them not arguments against vice or dissertations on temperance or justice, but flights of wit and sallies of pleasantry, or at least acute remarks, nice distinctions, justness of sentiment and elegance of diction. This expectation is indeed specious and probable, and yet such is the fate of all human hopes that it is very often frustrated, and those who raise admiration by their books disgust by their company. A man of letters, for the most part, spends in the privacies of study that season of life in which the manners are to be softened into ease and polished into elegance and when he has gained knowledge enough to be respected, has neglected the minuter acts by which he might have pleased. 
when he enters life if his temper be soft and timorous he is diffident and bashful from the knowledge of his defects or if he was born with spirit and resolution he is ferocious and arrogant from the consciousness of his merit he is either dissipated by the awe of company and unable to recollect his reading and arrange his arguments or he is hot and dogmatical quick in opposition and tenacious in defence disabled by his own violence and confused by his haste to triumph the graces of writing and conversation are of different kinds and though he who excels in one might have been with opportunities and application equally successful in the other yet as many please by extemporary talk though utterly unacquainted with the more accurate method and more laboured beauties which composition requires so it is very possible that men wholly accustomed to works of study may be without that readiness of conception and affluence of language always necessary to colloquial entertainment they may want address to watch the hints which conversation offers for the display of their particular attainments or they may be so much unfurnished with matter on common subjects that discourse not professedly literary glides over them as heterogeneous bodies without admitting their conceptions to mix in the circulation a transition from an author's book to his conversation is too often like an entrance into a large city after a distant prospect remotely we see nothing but spires of temples and turrets of palaces and imagine it the residence of splendour grandeur and magnificence but when we have passed the gates we find it perplexed with narrow passages disgraced with despicable cottages embarrassed with obstructions and clouded with smoke footnote exactly the opposite was the case with dr johnson himself the affluence vigour and wit of whose talk was phenomenal End of footnote End of section seven